0: Stand clear of the closing doors, please.
1: In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner—fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, senior junior lecturer Sam Spellingbaum. Professor Emeritus Calliope de Gamowitz and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Previously on the Kaleidocast, Professor Brad Overstreet was surprised, but surprisingly nonplussed to discover his late colleague, senior-junior lecturer Sam Spellingbound alive and well and drifting in and out of a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, When Spellingbound informed Overstreet that an aperture had formed between their universes through which an increasing number of stories were flowing, Overstreet's sense of surprise was strained, to say the least. But when Spellingbound revealed that the machine that could shut down the aperture had the potential to grant the user unlimited power, Overstreet's sense of surprise guttered, let out a tiny whimper, and gave way to outright megalomania. In a similar vein, Acquisitor James Earl King II's sense of surprise gave way to churlish opportunism. Feeling less liquid than the circumstances called for, he unloaded as many stories as he could on an unsuspecting Calliope de Gamowitz and made for the island of St. Croix. Would you like another mango daiquiri, Mr. II?
2: Why yes, please. Matter of fact, just bring out the whole 12-pack. When the end of all realities hits... I plan on being drunk on sugary alcohol.
1: On the island of St. Croix, daiquiris don't come in 12 packs. <laughs> they
2: do in Brooklyn. Matter of fact.
3: Whoa! That was unexpected! What are you doing here? That was teleportation! Which means me were Dean! Which, which also, also, means
2: also means Overstreet isn't Dean, Dean anymore. anymore, which also means he's dead, dead or about, about to do something, something stupid. stupid. Hey, stop stepping on my lines, Gamowitz.
3: That's Dean Dagamowitz to you, James. Get off your tuchus, you're coming with me to save the world from Overstreet and Spelling Ban's poor life choices.
2: <laughs> uh, sure, just uh, let me get my coat.
3: You mean you're not going to fight me on this?
2: Oh, no, no, no. Hero refusing the call? some Joseph Campbell donkey. (laughs) I'm ready to rock.
3: You're not the hit. You know what? It's fine. Pretty sure I can teleport the two of us and your ego. Vexatious. Vexatious. Velociraptor. Valedictorian. Voracious. Vegetarianism. Spellingbound? Overreach? Overreach. Get away from the machine! Yeah,
0: (laughs) what she said. James and Degamowitz? That's Dean Degamowitz to you, Overstreet. Ha! You can have your precious title. Now I understand why Jenkins left for the private sector. I'm so done suffocating in academia. Don't even get me started on the office hours. Spellingbound, get off the ground and... ooh. What's that beautiful
2: sound? I tried to tell him, but he wouldn't listen. It's the sound of the machine going critical. Quickly, you must sacrifice yourself to reset the machine. Do it now. Sacrifice who now? That is definitely not in the script.
3: Was that the machine too?
2: Wallflowers by Lila Wilde and beloved Mr. Grudge by J.M. Plumley. Run! I thought you were the hero. Heroes make it to the end credits. Those stories will eat you. Go, go, go. (laughs) You make a valid point.
4: Wallflowers by Lila Wilde It was a quarter to nine getting close to the limelight's bedtime. Once upon a time, 47 West 20th, Going to sleep so early was utterly inconceivable. The late hour was when the former church had thrown its arch doors open for loud, raucous business. Devotees cluttering together in a midnight mass of sensual intoxicants and wild pageantry and all-night dancing. It was one of the best, some said the best, clubs in the city. Back when the nightlife romped around multi-level playgrounds throbbing with hard beats and glistening skin. When going out meant choosing which strobe-lit maze would be the most fun to spend the evening in. Not anymore. The infamous nightclub had gone under the renovation knife and woken up as a glossy boutique. It was heartbreaking, but not surprising not after the complete sanitization of Times Square or the arrival of J.C. Penney, not when the poet's terrain of fire escapes and ironwork stoops was steadily being eaten by a profusion of luxury glass cells. The city would now rather go shopping than dancing, said those who jacked the rent. And the limelight changed, from a bacchanalian labyrinth to a trend-whore temple. Her name was Jillian, or Taylor, or maybe Ashley, and she stood behind a counter. She was a thing of tasteful nude lipstick and aspirational handbags, dressed in the gray antique of newly constructed condos. No name tag profaned her silk blouse. Nothing at all to proclaim her role here but the imperiousness and perfectly kept hair endemic to high-end salespeople. She tapped her manicure against the glass and gazed out across the limelight's latest incarnation. Key pieces of the church had been left intact throughout the building's past lives the vaulted ceilings, the stained glass windows. But now, there were registers and mirrors and a black-and-white checkerboard floor that felt like an attempt to be sophisticated Bloomingdales, but came off more surreal Disney. A pair of glass doors had been installed at the entrance, greeting entrance with columns of accepted credit cards, Instead of towering drag queens, track lighting brightened up every secretive corner, and clothing racks brought the dance floor to a permanent halt. Instead of a DJ in the pulpit, auto-tuned pop tracks coursed through the speakers. Alcoves for trysts were filled with pricey tchotchkes. Selling dresses for parties that would never be as cool as what used to happen here. Jillian or Taylor or Ashley was the type who would have dug bottle service. But that whole concept was so last decade. Now the hot spots were modeling themselves on the speakeasies. The perfectly muddled cocktail was the order of the day tiny venues going for an intimate vibe and dropping the dance floors completely. She approved, but of course she would, helping to plush out the city's rough edges with safe nests of pin-tucked leather and hulking chandeliers. These insatiable appetites for fine things had already upscaled so much of the charm right out of the village. All the legendary hustle and quirk paved over with block after block of nine-dollar appetizers. St. Jerome's all-night hair metal party, bleaker bobs and their endless bins of vinyl, Lucky Chang's, High tailing it to the theater district. Don Hills, religious sex, Motor City, so many more. All gone. She herself admired what John Varvados had done to CBGBs. A boutique full of thousand dollar jackets was so much better for this city than that howling filth magnet. She floated about the store like a pretty little fish in a tank, chatted here and there with other Jillians and Taylors and Ashleys while she patrolled the aisles. She adjusted a drooping sleeve here, rearranged a pyramid of candles there kept an eye out for shoplifting while simultaneously ignoring the customers. Most of them weren't going to buy anything anyway. She had the intimidation thing down, possessing the hawkish eye that scanned guest lists, the sharp voice that guarded the velvet ropes of the upper strata, and eager enforcer of the refined atmospheres that were just as much about who you kept out as who you let in. She spotted a girl walking away from a skincare display, her hair unevenly dyed candy pink. A weird rash of acrylic paint splattered across the back of her jean jacket she was rubbing her hands jillian taylor ashley sprang into action excuse me were you trying the lotions yes said the girl brightening a little at the attention it's not self-service you need to find someone to help you you customer, are expected to come to me. Teenage shoulders dropped into a slump, and a hurt expression crossed her young features as she slunk out back to whatever bridge or tunnel she'd come from. One day, she would get her experimenting right. Jillian, Taylor, Ashley tossed her head and immediately caught another customer in the midst of an infraction. She marched over to a stained glass window. Excuse me, pictures are not allowed in here. A guy in rumpled black denim lowered his smartphone, stepped up to her, all politeness. I'm doing a study of historic New York buildings. I'm a student at pictures are not allowed. But it's art. How can you? I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave if you don't abide by our policy. But she arched an eyebrow at Justin or Brent or a Kyle who came over and took the wannabe photographer off her hands and escorted him off the premises. He would go on to showcase his work in an enormously popular online gallery. The clock finally crept on to five of nine, and the pop music died into an obvious, time to leave, we're closing up, silence. She loudly herded the customers towards the door as the other Jillians and Taylors and Ashleys spritzed the glass counters and ran brooms across the checkerboard floor. Around the limelight she walked, locking each door. All the different doors were years ago. Different factions of nightlife had come streaming in. How to spend the rest of her evening. Browsing a brand new designer discount website. Or maybe a drink at the opening of a chic new bar down the street. It didn't matter what she chose. This Manhattanite would create no new art. Would pump no fresh burst of created lifeblood into the city. All was secure. She turned around and came face to face with a short, slender figure in combat boots and cargo pockets. Boy. Girl. She couldn't tell. Quickly she scanned the store and saw that the other Jillian's and Taylor's and Ashley's had disappeared. All left for the night. She was alone. How'd you sneak in here? She snarled with all the power invested in her by the retail elite. Elaborately drawn eyeliner regarded her through red-tipped dreads, like cherries on clove cigarettes. A smirk of flawless black lipstick was not afraid of her couture bravado at all. The androgyny reached into a spiky rubber bag that had been all the rage twenty years ago and lifted out a palmful of rainbow glitter. A wide, almost pitying smile before those midnight lips Softly blew the glitter towards her face. She clamped her eyes shut and jerked her head to the side. When she opened them again, her reflexive command to leave was barked to an empty room. The kid had vanished. Colors shimmered from her neutral silks, from the black and white floor. As she tread through the sparkle, a heavy scent climbed the air, thick as incense. Salty like frankincense, sweet like jasmine, it rose up through the levels like the fumes of a priest's censer. The track lights dimmed and the stained glass windows started to glow. A form took shape in the chiffon whirl of a skirt. Another collected in the wave of a banner that proudly proclaimed Limelight Marketplace. A steady progression of techno beats spilled out of the speakers and grew louder, and the shop's perfumes receded behind the stench of cigarette smoke and spilled beer. Spinning spotlights awakened to sweep the room in red and green and blue. She heard... Impossible. Laughter. The cutaway rooms and lofts above started buzzing with voices. And the stairwells came alive with people. Artists, musicians, writers, drag goddesses, goths, kids from Staten Island, thrilled to have gotten into a Manhattan club at all. A wildly eclectic blend of personalities gathered at the railings of the mezzanine, peeked down from the higher levels. The more festive ones strutted the stairways in flamboyant costumes and incredible makeup, their neon plumage on display like birds in an elaborate black cage evening gloves and chandelier earrings, bobbed wigs and skyscraper platform boots. The room was ablaze with Patricia Field, Betsy Johnson, Tish and Snooki, the Salvation Army. They were beautiful. They were terrifying. They were coming toward her, the one live human standing at the bottom of it all. She recoiled from their ghostliness, but also from something else. The place in the city they inhabited. A slice of town where her platinum visa dreams were not welcome. An underworld of sweat, and lunacy, and danger that was completely incomprehensible to her. A bright vision was descending from the ceiling to join them. A mannequin had taken on the outspread arms of Jesus, the pose of the crucifixion covered over in tiny disco mirrors transformed into a gesture of sparkling benediction. No bloody hands and pleading eyes conferred guilt upon these masses. Dazzling light beamed from every inch of the human form. It had held steady through all kinds of bad nights. Alcohol-fueled binges, nasty breakups, the drugs going strange places. It was a radiant savior fed by all the disciples who had ever looked up from the midst of a midnight hell and needed some kind of hope, some kind of connection. The Redeemer's hands reached her face, her shoulders, and came together around her. Its brace was ecstasy. It wrapped her in a sweet call of warmth, a flood of love that weakened her knees and melted her brittle glass heart. She'd always believed that wearing beautiful clothes was all you had to do to matter. But in the icon's arms, the dark world around her changed. She felt it now. The pleasure in subverting the fashion dictates instead of bowing to them. There was a glamorous laughter in the way they dressed, that they were taking this so seriously and not seriously at all, earning your way through on wit and imagination, not a credit card. She understood their sneers. Finally. All kinds of people had gathered here. People who would never have dreamed of ending up together when the night was over. In fat pants and corsets, in baggy tees and thigh-high boots, they clustered around her in an impromptu chill room and stroked her skin. Light winking from a green, glittered manicure. O-rings chiming from a bondage bracelet. The communion of exotic substances. The sanctuary of a stranger's hot flesh. Getting lost in the beat for hour after hour. Moving on to the next rosary bead of a freshly cued track. This was what it had been like to come out and play in the big city. And she never wanted the sun to come up. But this was New York, and she wouldn't be getting off that easy. The warmth became too warm. Much too warm. Her pulse started to gallop and her pupils constricted as the mirror-ball Christ held her tighter and tighter. All that love and light sending her into the convulsions of an MDMA overdose. Fingers that had never held a paintbrush or strummed a chord. Lips that had never sang a ballad or slammed poetry at a crowded village cafe. The city was demanding its measure of artistic lifeblood from her anyway. The chill room hands stroked her harder and harder, looking for something, something they couldn't find, and they dug into her skin with nails, and then Teeth. Starving for the next beskia or Finley, or Ramon, and not getting it from her. Never getting it from the Jillians, and Taylors, and Ashleys, who were tombstoning the galleries, and the dives, and the coffee shops with Froyo. Gore clotted the silk of her blouse, the net of her stockings, as they kept reaching in, deeper and deeper, and they came away with nothing. The colors were blurring, the glowing windows, the whirling spotlights, all those tiny mirrors, blinding as a migraine, all of them becoming one. Soon her body stopped shaking, and her sight went white as the dawn. In the morning, when the doors were unlocked, and a long day of waiting on customers was just beginning, glitter and blood was found puddled across the limelight's floor. A lot like how it used to be back in the day.
3: Lila Wilde is a graduate of Clarion West and her dark fiction has appeared in venues such as Pseudopod, Dark Tales from Elder Regions, New York, Nightblade, and Morbid Curiosity. Her fascinations include belly dance dabbling, eerie synths, horror movie interior decorating, and running away to the beach. She lives in Queens amid a clamor of doom metal noodling and two cats. Visit www.leopardmoon.com for more info.
2: Jennifer Carter is an actor from Virginia, California, and Florida living and working in New York City. When not lending her voice to speculative storyscapes, she can be seen on stage with many New York City theater companies, most recently as Dogberry, in an industry reading of Turns to Flesh's new work, The Merry Wives of Windsor. She also loves fighting, uh, stage combat, that is. And this past winter, Fight directed Queen Shakespeare and What Dreams May Come's production of Henry the Sixth, Part One through Three. She also enjoys pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. Follow her on Instagram at Femme and at her website, www.gencarter.weebly.com.
1: This episode of Kaleidocast Season Two was brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, PsychoGirl.com. Connor and Thea Cook.
2: Oh no, they couldn't do it. It's all over. This world is about to end. No, no, not while I still draw breath. Not on my watch, not on my lawn, not on my temporal plane of causality. Sam Spellingbound does not know the meaning of the word quit. I mean, he does. It became part of the English lexicon circa 1175 to 1225 uh, CE from the Middle English Cateran to pay, acquit oneself by way of medieval Latin Catare to release or discharge. Just saying, uh, I, he, uh, I won't
0: do it. Brad! Now, if I'm following these IKEA instructions correctly, then, hmm, uh, yes, Sam?
2: Let my sacrifice inspire you to live out your best self, remember this moment, and let it change you. Oh, please, don't do it. Raise a glass to freedom.
0: Yeah, yeah, history has its eye on you. Okay, so, connect slot A of Despotic Relay to attachment B of Cobra Commander Capacitor, which feeds directly into the Ultimate Power Stabilizer, then rewind the Galactus Crank until you get a full charge. Easy enough.
1: Beloved Mr. Grooch by J. M. Plumley. Big cities are smaller than you think. Everyone knows about me and Sherry, and everyone knows about Mr. Grooch. Sherry and I have loved each other for almost 15 years, since we were kids, since before it was okay to love the way we did. People know us for how much we love each other. Anyone with half a brain knows it. Just like anyone with half a brain knows not to fuck with Mr. Grooch. Thing is, a lot of people seem to be missing brains lately. No one will help me. No one believes me. Sherry was my entire world, and now she's gone. They think I'm the idiot, but they've forgotten how it used to be. That alley on 4th is no joke. When we were kids, there was a pharmacy on one side of the alley and this shitty Chinese restaurant on the other, two of the least intimidating places, and it was still scary. It's so narrow that trash cans barely fit, and a dumpster definitely can't. If you go there and try to stretch out your arms, your elbows hit either wall. So it's cramped, but it also goes back a ways, which is why I think Mr. Grooch likes it. There's nothing at the end but another wall. I think it's the back of a laundromat. And no lights. Even on a sunny day, the buildings are tall enough that most of the alley stays dark. There are no windows. It's endless, slimy, rank brick with a single steel door about halfway down. No one can see you back there, unless they're looking. And they're never looking. A couple of winos tried to live in that alley before the pharmacy became the pawn shop and the restaurant that stupid bar. Sometimes junkies would try, too. Shari and I would pass by on our way to school, and it was never the same person. No one ever stayed, you see. It was foul back there, even for people who are used to foulness. Cracked concrete and puddles of garbage juice, cans overflowing or knocked over. Neither building wanted to claim responsibility for the mess. In this part of town, no one cared. Even if someone did take out the trash, there were always beer bottles, chip bags, cigarettes, condoms, and other things that people just dump. Sometimes the winos stuck it out, but those that did looked nervous. Us kids knew why. The trash is why Mr. Grouch likes it there. He doesn't need much to hide in but people give him plenty. Mr. Grouch. I can't remember who first told me about him. Everyone just knew. They've pretended to have grown out of it now, but they still know. They're just more scared to admit it. Every one of us used to hold our breath as we passed that alley. A lot of us would cross the street. Some idiots went there at night to see how deep they could go before chickening out, But not as many as you'd think. People don't do any of that anymore. People are so quick to forget. And yeah, if you're wondering, our fear was justified. Those winos that stuck it out and stayed in that alley? They died. Remember that? A whole bunch of them did, one after another. In that alley. Chewed up by Mr. Grouch. Though the police wouldn't admit it, we all knew. Remember? It happened within the span of a few weeks, and then poof! No whinas would come within a mile of here. Our parents tried to keep us inside after that. They were paranoid for months. I remember because that was when I realized I had a crush on Sherry. I called every day to make sure she was all right. When my mom and I would walk by her apartment, I looked up at her window, hoping to see her face. She lived on the fourth story, and had lacy white curtains. Though we were only 12, she'd put makeup on before she looked out at me. Her hair looked like honey. I wanted to kiss it. Which brings me to another point. It really pisses me off that at a time like this, people think it's okay to question the quality of our relationship. We loved each other. We always, always have. They're jealous because she was beautiful and because I am so patient and loving and deserved her. God, I love her so much. This whole thing is going to kill me. I know it is. I can't sleep. Anything I eat tastes like cardboard. She's only been gone for two days. I should never have agreed to that concert in that stupid bar. It was too close to that alley, too easy for her to step out into it for a smoke. She was too drunk. I shouldn't have let her. I should have made her stay home. If I'm at fault for anything as her girlfriend, it's that. Because we were happy. The day she agreed to date me was the happiest day of my life. I was so nervous the morning I asked her that I threw up and had to frantically hide it from my mom. Everything I wore was Sherry's favorite color, blue, from my earrings to my underwear to my shoes. We were 18, still in high school. I was going to give her this poem I wrote, was going to leave it for her in her locker along with a flower, and then ask her to meet me after school if she wanted to date me. I had a whole plan. Then I arrived on campus and there she was, beaming at me, hair glowing in the sun. The other girls laughed at me, but she said I looked gorgeous. I just kind of blurted it out then. The question, I mean, and not gracefully. I thought she would hate me, but she threw herself at me and kissed me instead. They say the best love advice is to date your best friend. Sherry was it. She was everything. She forgave me for my quirks for my need for neatness, for communication, for alone time together. I held her when she was sick, listened to her dreams of stardom, her fears of being forgotten. I attended every piano recital, and after that, every rehearsal and concert of her band, even the one she said I didn't have to. Sherry was great at piano. She was great at pretty much everything. We never fought, not really. People like to think that we were on the rocks because she started to go out a lot without me, but I trusted her. She'd always call me when I asked, and when she'd come home, I'd be awake and waiting, so happy to see her. My birthday would have marked our official 10-year anniversary. That's less than a month away. I had planned on taking her out to her favorite Indian place to thank her for being so great to me. I know I'm not always the easiest. She would have loved it. I would have paid for everything, would have worn that slinky blue dress that's been her favorite for almost five years now, would have brought her blue roses. Now she's dead. Happy birthday to me. People don't react well when I tell it like it is. They don't want to hear that she's dead. They want to say that she's gone someplace else. They don't want to say where, not to me but it's like they're spitting in my face to even suggest something like that. Sherry and Ursula don't care about each other that way. They started the Headless Dolls, their punk band, because they were artistically compatible. That's it. Ursula is not that pretty and is really kind of a bitch. I've tried to get a hold of her since Sherry disappeared, and she won't even pick up her phone. How heartless is that? I know she doesn't like me, but that's because she's jealous of what Sherry and I had. She's completely jealous. Everyone is. They shouldn't be, though, with the pain I'm going through. I just love Sherry so much. It hurts to imagine her hurting, and I know Mr. Grouch hurt her. I don't like to imagine what he might have done. They used to say he rapes his victims, either before or after eating them, Sometimes on his own, sometimes with one of their own ripped-off limbs. He's got to have terrible teeth to tear people apart like that. I heard that he can eat everything, including the bones. He never shits them out, either. They just stay in, which is why he has a bit of a paunch. It's why he's always shiny with sweat. It's so awful, imagining him wrapping his lips around Sherry's small, perfect face, Imagining her screams, with me not being able to hear her because she left the bar without me. He must have watched with his white eyes as she struggled. He must have smiled, silent but gleeful, with chunks of her caught in his teeth. Ursula probably ran away, the coward. That's why she's avoiding me. I caught her at the corner store this morning. When she saw me, she dropped the cracker she was holding and ran out the door. Guilty. She didn't even try to save her. Out of all the people to fall prey to Mr. Grouch, I never expected it would be Sherry. I can't stop crying. Meanwhile, people are telling me to get over it. They want me to get back on the dating scene to see a therapist. Nobody's worried. Nobody cares. They are being willfully ignorant that there is a tragedy at hand, that there has been a murder. No. They can't look past their catty Facebook feeds, past McDonald's gossip sessions. They get caught up in terminology. Giving space is just that. Space. I gave it to her. And because I did, everything was fine. Better, even. But no. They think they know what's happened. And because of that, Mr. Grouch has won. Because of people like them, heartless people, he's always won. They tell me to take it easy, but they don't understand. Sherry and I loved each other more than anyone ever has. We were special. I can't let her death go unacknowledged. I need to know. I need to see Mr. Grouch so I can know, so that they can see that I'm right. Their gossip is just gossip, but I'm still not sleeping. All it would take is one visit to the alley now that night has fallen. Mr. Grooch will come out, especially since I'm alone. Mr. Grooch is always hungry. I come up to the alley and stand outside for a long time, alone in the yellow streetlight. Cars pass, but no one stops to see what I'm doing. I can sense people staring at me as they walk by, but it's 11 p.m. on a Monday and they don't ask questions. The air reeks of stale beer and rotted meat. My friends would tell me it's the old hamburgers the bar throws out. I know better. My cheeks are wet, but I'm not brave enough to move. Sherry? One drink before I go, to steal my nerves. I hate this bar. Tall boy. The bar that's next to the alley. The bar where I saw the love of my life for the last time. It's dark, with one mirrored wall and a performance space at the back. Bumper stickers cover the ceiling and remaining wall space. There is gum under my stool. The bartender recognizes me. Sherry's in here, he says, carefully. I give him my bitch face. I know that. He hands me a gin and tonic on the house, and with nice gin, too. He pities me, but for the wrong reasons. I can tell he believes the bullshit flying around about Sherry and Ursula, too. I finished my drink quickly. There, on the stage, the headless dolls held hands as they bowed. There's the booth where I watched them, where I caught Sherry's eye and she looked away as if she didn't see me. There's the salt shaker I squeezed as Sherry and Ursula and all their groupies took shots together without me. I wanted to give her space, to let her do her own thing. It was something she had requested but that's no reason for people to have started the rumors they have. There's the door Sherry stepped out of, pulling out a cigarette, Ursula right behind her. They didn't even look at me. The last thing I saw of Sherry was the back of her sweet, honeyed head. I guess I had to come here, too. I stand so quickly that I scare myself and the bartender both. Thanks, I tell him. And leave a $20 tip. I think about just leaving my whole wallet, but I don't want to alarm him and have him following me. So I smile, and I turn to the side door, and I step out into the cold, reeking alley. Of course, I looked here the first night Sherry disappeared, but by then I was wasted and had a lot of people hanging on to me. I found her cell phone, screen cracked, covered in grease and coffee grounds, the bright starfish case I gave her missing entirely but my would-be friends said that she must have just dropped it, that it wasn't a sign of anything wrong. Needless to say, we didn't see Mr. Grouch then. He wouldn't bother with the bunch of people at once. One or two, though. An ungrateful girlfriend and her idiotic hanger-on, for example. That is a number he can handle. Now the alley is quiet. I take a deep breath and gag. Stepping out from the door, my boot squelches in something I can't see. I take out my phone, hands shaking, and aim the backlight at it. It looks like raw chicken bits, but I can't be sure. I blink the tears from my eyes so I can see better, and turn my phone at the trash cans. Mr. Grouch? I whisper. I doubt anyone's ever called him by name, not to his face. There's garbage spilling out of the cans and onto the ground, but none of it moves. A fly circles in front of my light and then out again. I glance over my shoulder back at the street. Empty. There should be nothing to stop him from grabbing me. I'm an easy target. Alone. Tired. But he doesn't come. I get closer to the trash, so scared that I stop caring about the stink. I can see crushed beer cans, rotting limes, a half-exploded carton of curdled milk. I'm here, I say. Mr. Grooch, I'm here. I'm alone. It's not a trap. I hear myself swallow, but no one replies. A generator kicks up a few apartments down. Another fly lands on a wad of tinfoil, rubs its legs together, and takes off again. You took her, I say, and my voice cracks. You took Sherry, right? I can feel my heart beating in my face. I know I'm flushed in a way Sherry always said didn't look good on me. Come on, I snap, and then shut myself up again. I can't let anyone hear. Come on, I beg. Come on. But he doesn't come, and I'm starting to shake really badly. I think that maybe if I show him my back, make myself even more vulnerable. Maybe he'll attack that way, and so I turn around. After a few minutes pass, I sit down to make it even easier. Something cold soaks through my jeans. I don't care what it is. I jam my hands down, relishing the dirty glass that cuts into my palm. My lips shiver. Mr. Crooch. A fly buzzes over and lands on me now, tickling my cheek. I don't move. One of my tears slides into it, and it flies away again. When it does, I begin to cry in earnest. Sherry. Now I'm looking at these walls closer, and I'm seeing how there are spaces that a couple could press up against, spaces where Sherry could have been lifted the way she likes, where she could have wrapped her legs around Ursula's ugly waist. I'm seeing how dark it is, not only dark enough to scare people, but dark enough to do more than just kiss. I'm seeing how easy it would be to step out into the street, to flag down a cab, to just ride away. Ten years. Could she really not even last the full ten? We'd been each other's first lover, first best friend, first travel partner, first roommate. We danced Bikes lovingly decorated the rooms of our apartment, took care of plants and fish, quietly drank coffee and sucked oranges to start our mornings right, to start them together. We'd made it through parent sickness, pneumonia, a good friend dying at school. We'd been through so much together, and now she couldn't be bothered to even say goodbye. How could she do that to me? How could she let those gossipers be right? A bottle echoes as it bounces out of a trash can. At first I ignore it, but then a wrapper crunches and another bottle clatters to the ground. My breath leaves me. It's like I'm watching someone else as I turn around. There is someone climbing out of the cans. He is tall, and he is slick, and he is so pale that he almost glows in the dark. I don't remember how but I've risen to my feet. I'm crying again, but not with sadness. The figure warps through the water in my eyes, gently coming closer. His belly seems to stretch, as if someone is struggling to get out. There are eggshells, noodles, and chunks of fat stuck to his chest and face. I smile, sobbing with relief. Today is the happiest day of my life. Mr. Grouch holds up Sherry's phone case, the one with the pink and orange starfish that I gave her for her birthday. I think he might be smiling. He knows. He understands. I don't make him come to me. I run to him, arms outstretched. As his teeth sink into my collarbone, I close my eyes and sigh. Sherry's perfume is on his breath. Thank you. I say, and feel my blood soak through my boots. Thank you..
4: She had an of room. She was you J. M. Plumley
1: writes humor horror and a blog about monsters she is an active member of the brooklyn speculative fiction writers and has library cards from multiple states and countries visit jmplumley.com for more
0: this episode of kaleidocast season two was brought to you by our kickstarter supporters kirk a johnson michael schlater and greg and sarah rubin thank you Running, running Scary Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. Degamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our storyrunner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2. Treats with life, and with life despite life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. Additional audio engineering was provided by Atticus Ryan Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Kat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.